Thanks for joining us here at Belgium Community Church. Our current series is called 167. It's a look at the book of James on what faith looks like beyond Sunday. What's really dangerous to our faith? What are the real dangers with following Jesus 167, 100, really 168 hours per week? We've been in a series walking through the book of James that talks about what does faith look like beyond Sunday morning. But what are those things that are during the week we should actually be afraid of? If you're like me, you see news headlines that's like, somebody thought it was a toothache, but really it was, I don't know, some kind of spider infection, you know, something, something, something. So then every toothache, I'm afraid of this. The real danger, what's the real danger for us spiritually? There's those things that are outliers, maybe. Those things out there that could be afraid of persecution, losing a job, something really, really, some really extreme temptation. But what are those things that, like day after day, might chip away at my love for Jesus? Maybe you you think about it in your own life. Maybe it's a friend, and you're like, "What happened in his life that like led him away from the Lord? It wasn't any major thing. It was just it seemed like maybe in my child's life, maybe in my friend's life, something began chipping away." And eventually there was no faith left. What are those things that we should actually be afraid of that are really dangerous? That's what James chapter 5 is going to tell us today. What those, those, those real dangers are. So go ahead and turn to James chapter 5 with me. James chapter 5. We're going to begin with verses 1 through 6. They'll be on the screen or you can grab a Bible from the seat in front of you. James chapter 5, verse 1 says, Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Let's pray. God, we, we come before you. We need to hear a word from you. We need to hear your word speaking clearly into our ears and into our hearts because we have so many other messages that we are bombarded with. So calm our hearts and let us listen to what you have to say in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. James, the book of James ends kind of oddly. It's a letter from a, a, the church leader James, the brother of Jesus, written to Jewish Christians who have been scattered in persecution. And then you look at it, it ends with things like warnings to rich people. It talks about prayers for healing. It just kind of like stops. And it, from my perspective, that's not how I would stop a letter. But the way... Letters at the time were written is letters would end with a summary, an oath taken in the name of the gods, like a wish for people's healing, and then it would end with kind of a hey, this was the purpose for my letter. So we end a letter with something, something, something. I hope you're well, sincerely, Joseph Vodasevich. But the, the, the way letters at that time were written is it was like a summary, an oath, I wish you well, I wish you healing. 
and then the purpose of the letter. And so in that light, James, the letter, the chapter five begins to make a little bit more sense. Oh, this is what they're doing. And the end of James chapter five tells us the purpose of this is verses 19 and 20. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. And so the purpose is, I want to keep you from wandering and I want you to help other people to keep from wandering. And so the the call in chapter 5 to us is this call, don't wander. Stand firm against temptations to wander from the faith. What does faith look like beyond Sunday? It looks like standing firm. Not giving up, not going back. And what I want to show you today in this call to stand firm against temptations to wander from the faith, I want to show you four ways that we can stand firm 168 hours a week. Four ways to stand firm 168 hours a week. The first way is to mourn the corrupting effect of wealth. Verses 1-6 through six call us to mourn the corrupting effect of wealth. It starts with, now listen you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. This, the verses 1-6 through six lay out that wealth has this corroding effect. Just eating away and eating away and eating away until you don't even see the judgment that's coming on you. Wealth has this, that money and riches have this way of blinding our eyes to injustice so that we can deceive, so that we can rob, so that we can oppress. It has this corroding effect so that we don't even see it. Verse verse 3 says, your gold and your silver are corroded. Verse 2 says, your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Wealth and riches and money can have this corrosive effect so that we don't even see what's going to happen. This is the the image that Jesus gives us when He says that a man can't serve two masters. You cannot serve both money and God the Father. That money has this blinding effect, this, this, this covering our eyes. The Bible also says that idolatry, or I'm sorry, greed, which is idolatry. The problem with wealth is not the wealth and the riches. The problem is that they have this way of eating away at our hearts until we don't even realize that God is standing against us. This week in my garden, I found, I found, a, a, I found a squash that was being eaten, which is not unheard of. At this time of year, usually some of my squash and pumpkin plants start dying off. I thought it was a little bit early, so I thought it was some mildew, and so I sprayed against that. I kind of watched out for that. And then they kept dying, and I was like, well, that's weird, but we've got weird weather this year. So this week weekend, we were walking through the garden and we found a, a squash that looked like it was just about right, but there were holes eaten out of it. And I looked and I was like, is that a worm? Is that some kind of larva? What is this? So I pull out my phone, I start looking, and I'm like, well, it doesn't sound right. I don't know what this is. And so I keep looking and I keep looking. And finally I realize, oh, it's a, it's a squash vine borer. I found out some more and I start looking at my plants and I realize that at the base of every one of them is a hole where these, these larvae have eaten their way in and now just eat along the inside of the vine, eating and eating and eating until they've killed the entire plant. If they get to a squash or to a pumpkin, they eat it from the inside out. But you don't know it until they've eaten too far. You see, they start out at these little tiny dots and if you've never grown anything in that spot before and you've never really dealt with that kind of a 
pests before. You don't realize what's happening. But these squash vine borers have been eating the inside of these vines while I've been watching and thinking it was something else. I'm telling you that because this passage says mourn the corrupting effect of wealth. It's like these vine borers that come at our hearts from the inside out and chew us up until all we're left with is God's judgment. This passage calls us to say, wealth has this corrosive effect on my heart. God, help me to use money and not let money use me. What does it look like? What does it look like to follow Jesus 167 hours? What does it look like to, to, to stand firm against temptation? It's to say, God, I've got money. You've put me in one of the wealthiest countries in the world and in world history. May I not be blinded to justice and injustice. May I not be blinded to my future. The call of this passage to each of us is to beware the corrupting idol of wealth. Any one of us is susceptible to becoming greedy. Any one of us is tempted to be turned away with by our hearts towards things and away from God. And so, standing firm against temptations says, mourn the corrupting effect of wealth. The second way to stand firm 168 hours a week is to be patient in suffering. Be patient in suffering. Verses 7 through 12 lay this out. Verse 7 says, be, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Verses 7-12 through 12 lays out for us that this call to be patient in suffering. Suffering can cause us to wander from the faith because we get so tired. Lays it out. But my brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. It's a call to have our eyes fixed on this vision of the Lord's coming. Don't just bear up with it because it's not a big deal. Don't bear up with it because you're looking backwards. Actually be patient in suffering because you're looking forward. Look forward until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crops, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. This image of a farmer is a farmer has to always look forward. I love this image because farmers act, cannot work harder and longer sometimes. Once the, cedar, once the seed is in, once the, once the crop is in, once it's been sprayed and the things that need to be fed have been fed to them, the farmer just has to wait. And so some of us, or all of us, when facing suffering, have to be like a farmer saying, I'm going to patiently wait on the Lord with my eyes on the harvest that's to come. He then points us to Job and says, but guys, like Job, who was patient in suffering, even though his friends spoke against him, even though his wife said give up, Job was patient in suffering. But ultimately, it's not just like a farmer have a vision on the future that causes us to be patient in suffering. It's also keeping in mind the character of God. Verse 11 says, ends with, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. How can we be patient in suffering? When our eyes are fixed on something that's ahead of us, 
and when our trust is resting on the character of a compassionate and merciful God who is not immune or ignorant of or uncaring about our suffering. He's compassionate and merciful while we are suffering. And this call is to rest in that. In the Middle Ages, pastors, priests, theologians, commented often that the the call of the Christian life is this call to a beatific vision. It's kind of a big word. I had to look up the pronunciation because I was saying it wrong. It's this, this concept that if we see God as He is, we will be changed to be like Him. And so the, this call that the church had to one another for hundreds of years was we want to see Jesus because we want to be changed to be like Him. This passage says, look on Jesus. Get this vision of God and of His coming that's in the future and this resting on His character because that is going to be the thing that causes us to be patient in suffering. So what trials do you face? It could be a financial trial. You go, I don't know how we're going to pay these bills. I don't know this next year what, what this is going to hold. Financially, you might say, I don't know what retirement holds. The call of this passage is to be patient in suffering on this looking at the character of God and the coming of God. Maybe you face trials in your relationships and you're like, I just want them to end. This passage calls us, be patient in suffering because your eyes are fixed on the day when Jesus will come through the clouds and bringing His kingdom to earth with a new heaven and a new earth. Keep your eyes fixed on that. Remember that God is compassionate and merciful in your suffering. Maybe you deal with chronic pain, chronic issues. And you say, I don't know how this will ever change. Know that God promises He will come back and the chronic pain will one day end. Keep your eyes fixed on that day when the chronic pain will be gone. Keep your eyes fixed on the God who is compassionate and merciful while every day just holds pain. What does it look like to stand firm 168 hours a week? Sometimes it's not fancy. It's just being patient in suffering. The third way that we stand firm in 168 hours a week is that we seek God's healing in sickness. Verses 13 through 18 is this turn to talking about healing. Our lives are often not made up of major mountains and big things to do. Sometimes it's battling sickness. Going into seasons with respiratory flu and colds and allergies and major medical diagnosis and cancer and chronic issues that don't seem like they can be dealt with. 168 hours a week sometimes feels like sickness. And this passage doesn't ignore that. Verse 13 says, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up if they have sinned. They will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops passage turns to sickness and says, how are we going to deal with sickness 168 hours a week? The call is to seek God's healing in sickness. 
The Bible gives us at least four reasons for, for sickness. Sickness is a result of the fall. You're familiar with that. This passage and other passages tell us that sometimes sickness is a result of sin. It is God's judgment, God's discipline on us when we sin. Sometimes sin or sickness is given to us because it's a test of faith. We see that earlier in the book of James, in James chapter 1, that sometimes trials of various kinds are actually just given because they test our faith and our faith makes it says godly. There's a fourth reason and I've forgotten it now. The Bible gives us multiple reasons that we can be facing sickness. But then in this passage, it gives us this process for facing sickness. A process of along with the elders. The Bible uses elder, pastor, and bishop interchangeably. But that we, we go to the leaders of the church and say, will you pray for me? Will I will confess sin? And will you anoint with oil? And will you pray for me asking God for His healing? But not only do we go to elders, but verse thir- uh, 16 says, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for one for each other so that you may be healed. So that it's also, it's not just something for the leaders of the church to pray for, but it's for you and I together to pray for each other. The ultimate recognition in, bo- in both of these kinds of process is that healing is something that comes from God. And if we're going to pray, we're praying that God would be moving in this way. You go, what's the, what's the relationship of healing to, from prayer and healing from a doctor? There are other passages of Scripture that talk about using medicines for healing. The thing that unites using medical care and using prayer for healing is that we believe that it is God's will for healing. We wouldn't go to a doctor if we thought we were going against God's will to go to a doctor. And so in the same way that we can in faith go to a doctor and say, will you help me? We can also go to the same God and say, God, will you help me? If you if you. If you will, you can make me clean. And so medical care and prayer don't become, don't become divided in a heart of faith. They actually become united with a heart of faith that we are willing to go to God and say, God, you can heal me. I realize there are multiple purposes for healing, but you can heal me, whether it's through medical care or whether it's through a, a, a miracle that comes from prayer. God, you're the one that heals. And so as we face temptation 168 hours a week, sometimes to give up because we're tired of being sick, this passage says go to God for healing. Pray for healing. Because it's God who does the healing. I'm reminded of the heart of Jesus. as People would come to Jesus saying, Jesus, if you can, you can make me clean. Jesus, if you want to, you can heal me. God, Jesus, will you heal my son? Jesus, will you heal me? I'm reminded of the woman that had been bleeding for years and years and had spent all of her money. And she went and touched Jesus' robe because she believed he was the one that could heal her. The call to us from James chapter 5 is to have that same heart and say, Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. We've already seen this call to be patient and suffering but it's also to trust in the compassionate and merciful heart of God and to pray in line with that and to seek healing in line with the compassion and mercy of God. So each one of us is called to say, God, help me turn to you in sickness. 
not sneaking off to a doctor and thinking, well, God might ignore this. No, I'm going to go in full faith to a doctor and I'm going to go in full faith before the Lord and ask for him to heal. Then we begin to say, okay, sometimes it's because of a result of sin. God, is there sin in my life? Let me confess it. Let me go to the people in my church and ask for healing. Let me go to the leaders of the church and ask for prayers for healing because sickness can turn my heart away from God. Either sin before or a hard heart afterwards. The call to us is to stand firm by seeking God's healing from sickness. And then the fourth way to stand firm 168 hours a week is to pursue wanderers with hope and grace. Verse 19 and 20 says, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. The purpose of the book is to turn wanderers back from the way that leads to death. And so he's encouraging us to have that same ministry and to look around and take take ownership Take responsibility for one another and say, I don't want anybody else to wander. And so the way to stand firm is to actually to stand firm for each other. We join together to pursue one another and to encourage one another towards love and good deeds. This should be the theme of our life. One of the things that strikes me about this passage is, or this section of the passage is that often cynicism about other people and cause me to write them off, not pursue them with grace, not pursue them with hope, not believe that anything can ever change. So standing firm means fighting cynicism by pursuing those wanderers with hope and grace. Holding out hope that the God that has loved and saved and pursued me is loving and saving and pursuing others. Not just hoping, but also pursuing them with grace. So often we write people that wander off and we push them away. This passage calls us to know, pursue them with grace. Let the truth be an invitation to them, not a weapon used over them. So do I turn others back? Do I accept others with grace? But before all that, do I hold out hope that nobody's too far gone? That nobody's... Nobody's so far I should write them off and say they, there's no hope for them. Standing firm against temptation means that we pursue wanderers with hope and grace. We pursue each other with hope and grace because all of our hearts are prone to wander. So we read this passage and we see we're called to mourn the corrupting effect of wealth. We're called to be patient in suffering. We're called to seek God's healing in sickness. We're called to pursue wanderers with hope and grace. And that becomes this standard that on Sunday morning for one hour we feel like, oh, well, maybe I can try this. But if we're honest, the rest of the week becomes just failure after failure. I'm not patient in suffering. I don't seek God's healing in sickness. I think He's not even paying attention. I don't mourn the corrupting effect of wealth. Instead, I just get greedy and grab more things because I think they'll make me happy. And I write everybody else off and think that I'm the only one. So where's the hope for you and I when this passage stands over us saying, not stand firm, but this passage says, come back. What if we've wandered off? What if we've sinned? How can we stand firm and overcome? 
I'm reminded of Philippians 2 and Hebrews 11 that paints this picture that Jesus, who had no sin of His own, endured the cross, despising the shame in our place. Jesus was the perfect One who was patient in suffering, but not for His own sin, but for mine. Jesus is the One who bore our sicknesses in His body on the cross, as Matthew tells us, and yet died. Jesus is the One who never wandered and pursued wanderers with hope and grace. I'm reminded that Jesus hanging on the cross pursued a thief and a murderer for His kingdom because nobody was too far gone. I'm reminded of Jesus who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and yet, yet died penniless naked on a cross for you and for I. So then these things don't become laws that condemn us. Instead, these laws have, that we have broken have, have condemned Jesus in our place. And so now we are free from the corrupting effect of wealth. We're, we're free to overcome. We're free to be patient in suffering because we know that God is compassionate and merciful towards us with no wrath left for those that have trusted in Jesus. We know that now sin has no power to ultimately condemn us in sickness. That even death, sickness and death will one day be transformed so that we come into His kingdom in full with new bodies, with no pain. And so now, we can hold out hope for wanderers. Because we've been wanderers who have been brought back. How can this be yours? You say, how can I overcome in this way? How can I know that this record is mine? The story of the Bible is that God made the world and He made it good. He made it so good. He put Adam and Eve in that kingdom and He said, live in this as My little kings. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Shepherd and steward it and care for it. And Adam and Eve and you and I said, no. That's not enough. We will make our own rules. We will live our own way. We will make wealth our gods. We will make success living pain-free, and living freedom and liberty, our gods. And God says He will one day crush His enemies. But instead of leaving us there, He lived the life that we should live and died the death that we should die. He came back to life as God's great approval on Him so that all who repent of sin and trust in Jesus repent, turn away and say, I give up this way of living. I live up, give up my own kingdom. Jesus, I will take You and Yours. And I will follow You. The Bible says that those who have repented, turned and trusted in Christ have been brought not just back into the kingdom, but into the family. And now have the Spirit living inside us so that we can stand firm against these temptations. So that we can know that when He comes, it will be a glad day and He will have a smile on His face for us. So what changes if we live this way? We're talking in this series about 167 hours a week. What changes outside of the church building in the rest of our lives. We become we we couldn't become a people that are free from the corrupting effect of wealth. Instead of measuring our lives by how much we have, we can measure our lives by how much God has given us and how much He's promised to those who love Him. The people around us can't be patient in suffering because there's not a purpose for it. There's no good that comes from it and there's no compassionate and merciful God looking down on us. But we can be different who can say, yes, this hurts, this life at this moment is so hard, but I can be patient in suffering because I have a compassionate God who promises He's coming back for me. 
What changes, what changes is we can be a people that in sickness and in health can say, God, we're coming to you. Whether we go to doctors, whether we pray for one another, whether we come to the elders, each one of us can say, we are seeking God's healing because we know that He is compassionate towards us. And then, what changes? The wanderers around us say, somebody's coming after me. The wanderers around us say, nobody's left me alone. But instead, somebody's coming after me with this, this, this perspective of hope. Instead of writing me off, I want to hear more about that. Paul of James, stand firm against temptations to wander from the faith every day. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your good word. We thank you that you have not given up on us. You do not write us off. And that you walk with us so that we can overcome. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us for our series called 167. Please connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and BelgiumChurch.com.